The following interview conducted over Skype deals with adult topics such as violence and language. Please use discretion. Basically, there is this moment where one of these uh, guys in uniform approaches us and, and says, uh, you guys, you guys can't leave. Uh, we, we are part of a guerrilla group of FARC. We are moving around here and our, our commander is not happy with you here. So uh, sorry to, to get you uncomfortable, but you guys have to pack, you know, whatever you have, your belongings and, and join us and go with us to camp because the commander really wants you to get, you know, close and personal, interview you directly. So probably there, probably there. Uh, to answer your question is when I think like fuck we we're in we're in trouble here. You're listening to Diego Calderon Franco, a biologist and birdwatcher from Medellin, Colombia, talking with me about his kidnapping by the FARC, in which he was held for 88 days in 2004. The FARC, which stands for the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or the People's Army, is a guerrilla movement that was established in 1964. Its objective? To fight against imperialism and government corruption. The group's mission was to advocate for the working class, the farmers, and the peasants. The easiest way to explain the FARC is as a radical communist group with the original intentions of fighting against the rich and standing up for the poor. The FARC quickly became what they fought against, committing the same war atrocities they held the Colombian government accountable for. Before you hear the rest of Diego's story, it's important to understand that for over 50 years, Colombia has been at war with itself. The four main groups involved in the fighting are paramilitary groups, which are right-winged, unsanctioned armed groups made up of civilians to fight against guerrilla groups, crime syndicates such as drug lords, the government of Colombia itself, and various guerrilla rebel groups like the FARC. Each of these groups have continued to achieve their objective by any means necessary, which has left millions of innocent civilians to be used as pawns by all four groups involved. Finally, in 2016, a peace treaty was signed between the FARC and the Colombian government. Rebel fighters from various groups vowed to put down arms if the government would permit guerrilla members to assimilate back into society and even hold a place as a legit political party during elections. And though this brief history lesson only scratches the surface of Colombia's turmoil, I'm hoping it gives you just enough to understand the rest of Diego's story. I'm Katie Mahalik, and you're listening to Shadow Clock. In April of 2004, Diego was a university biology student living in Medellin, Colombia. He and a fellow student, a botanist, who we will call the botanist from here on out, took a weekend trip up to the northernmost part of the Colombian Andes. They were scouting out the area for a longer trip that they would be taking with a bigger group of students in just a few weeks. Probably after some seven, eight hours of horseback riding in, in these mules, we, we reach the area uh, of the border with Venezuela, uh, a beautiful area with these huge walls of red rock that are called a Cerro Pintado, like the painted mountain, the painted peak. And if we were looking to the west, you could see the Santa Marta Mountains, the tallest coastal mountain range in the world. 
It was between these two picturesque peaks that Diego and his group found themselves hiking in a paramo habitat, a habitat that only exists at extreme altitudes, between 10,000 and 16,000 feet above sea level, to be exact. I've hiked through them myself once when in Colombia. They are lush and floral, with long blowing grasses and alien cactus-like flowers, and there really is nothing quite like it. So basically, we, we reached this area. We were just, you know, uh, chatting with the locals and all these people was showing us the places. Oh yeah, there's animals there, we've seen birds here. We're basically mapping the area to know uh, where we we're going to be working in, in a few weeks' time with the full expedition. And then some guys showed up with loads of mules, probably 12, 15 mules loaded with groceries, loaded with food. They were not wearing military uniforms, they weren't uh, wearing camouflage. Uh, they were, you know, like, like normal campesinos, wearing jeans or, or ponchos and their hats. They looked like just regular peasants. Though they were dressed like regular civilians, Diego remembers that the two men stuck out because of the amount of food they were hauling on the back of all those mules. We thought they were maybe just local local peasants, but that they were probably working for an armed group to, to bring them uh, food and sources and groceries. And of course, our presence uh, really, really got these guys uncomfortable and really, really curious. So curious, in fact, that these two men and their 12 to 15 mules camped right outside a tiny cabin the same cabin Diego and his crew were staying that night. The modest home was owned by a few men who were planting poppy seeds to sell in the heroin market. Even, even illegal, even a really crappy source of problems, not only for our country, but for the world, this, this poppy production, you can't imagine how beautiful these mountains were with you know these patches of orange, red, purple, the, 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 the view, the landscape was absolutely, absolutely picturesque because of this. That I cannot deny that. It was crazy to me to think that there was an illegal poppy seed crop growing right there out in the open. But where Diego was, out in the open, was also out in the middle of nowhere. No one was going to find that crop. And if they did, no one cared unless they were law enforcement. And to say law enforcement was scarce in these parts, well, that was an understatement. Anyway, as I mentioned, the guys with all the food and the mules stayed the night. And when Diego and his group woke up the next morning, the two curious men were still there. Basically, these guys are just hanging out there, also drinking a coffee with us for breakfast. They were really, really, how do you say, kind of shy and secretive. They were not, you know, like approaching us much. And basically, these guys said, you know, you guys, you guys can't leave. We are part of a guerrilla group of FARC. We are moving around here and our commander is not happy with you here. So sorry about this, but you have to stay for probably half a day or the full day until our commander gives us instructions about what to ask you or, you know, if, if you need to send him some information or something. In this case, I delivered, you know, the documents to these guys to, to show them to the commander. Um, and basically night came, uh, these guys didn't have any answer. So we have to pass the night again there. And the next morning, actually, when, when we woke up, basically outside the house, it was already a big, big group of guerrilla guys wearing uniforms, wearing camouflage. They were just camping there. They probably arrived in the, in the early morning or late night or something. Uh, I don't remember, but probably, you know, 40 guys or something like that. And it was, it was I mean, it was clearly already for us that 
we were we were dealing with a guerrilla group that in this case, of course, these guys already had said it was FARC. Okay, Diego, so you gotta, this is crazy. So when you're telling me this, I, I have two questions. But first, what is the moment you realize that you're really in, in some trouble here? <laughs> Uh, it, it, not, not yet, actually, because this was still a normal, let's say, situation. As I said, as a biology student in the early 2000s, you know, we experienced these things already and we handled them well. You know, we, we've been never in trouble and we've been doing research on these areas that were somewhat controlled by either guerrilla left-wing groups or right-wing paramilitary groups, and they were always okay with us. The way Diego recounted the story in this calm, matter-of-fact manner was such an odd juxtaposition to the actual information he was telling me. However, Diego reminded me this was the early 2000s, 12 years before the peace agreement. He and other students who went into remote regions of the country expected to run into either a guerrilla group or a paramilitary group, and usually it wasn't a big deal. As a rule, students carried papers from both the university and the Environmental Protection Agency, which explained what they were doing in the field. And do your professors train you at school? Like, hey, these are, no, this is the no, way you handle situations? No, not at all. Not at all. It was, we were young students and we wanted to research areas where, you know, like nature was not explored and it was kind of remote and far away. But of course, those places were the, the, probably the most dangerous in those days because it was where the guerrilla was or the right-wing paramilitary. So this is what we had to face. Again, we were not yet in trouble. I should mention here that the FARC was armed, though Diego and the others were not directly threatened with the guns, nor were their movements restricted. There wasn't any kind of aggressive strategy to keep them there. They didn't talk much, but Diego said it wasn't necessarily tense either. Diego even remembers birding in the garden, the term he uses for watching birds. As you heard him say, what was happening really wasn't that out of the ordinary. Everyone kind of understood how this worked, and both sides were just waiting it out till they got word from the FARC's commander that the students could go. Basically, there is this moment where one of these uh, guys in uniform approaches us and, and says, like, guys, we are the, the front number 41 of FARC in, in, in this area. We, we rule this area. And we are not happy with you here. Uh, we, we really are uncomfortable. You have all these binoculars and recorders and GPS. Uh, we don't really believe much about this story. You're telling us that you're bird watchers and botanists and researchers and biologists. Uh, so, so guys, you, you, you have to stay here with us probably for a couple of days until we really, really figure out what you're doing here and, and we are all happy and clear. So, I mean, we, we said, yes, mate, you, you're the boss. Uh, what if you had said, I'm sorry, but we, we have to go? What did you guys think would happen? I mean, we're only two or three guys just in the middle of these, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 guerrilla chaps. We, we were basically, the, the, the nature of the situation says that you just have to cope with it and roll with it. And OK, guys, uh, we'll, we'll wait. We might see some birds around here while, while we wait, and let's hope this thing is not going to last too much. I love that you say, and maybe we'll see some birds, you know? I, I love it. I tell you, like, why not? Why not? I mean, if you are in this amazing area, you, you have to not only entertain yourself, that the birds entertain you easy if you know them and blah, 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 but I mean, just keep keep busy and, and happy and doing something. But then, I don't remember if it was next day or the day after the next, uh, a lot of them started to, to leave 
And we were with only five, you know, guerrilla guys wearing uniforms and their guns, everything. I mean, like these guys, one of these guys approached us and said, um, okay, guys, I have some bad news. The commander is not yet happy with you, with your presence here. We, we, we really have to, to leave in a couple of hours. We have a camp like above this mountain that you're watching here. And we probably have to hike, you know, five, six hours to get there. So sorry to, to get you uncomfortable, but you guys have to pack, you know, whatever you have, your belongings and, and join us and go with us to camp because the commander really wants you to get, you know, close and personal, interview you directly and get all these straighter. So probably there uh, to answer your question is when I think like, fuck, we, we, are in, we are in trouble here. We are going to the camp. We are, we are going to the house of these guys, you know, we, we probably, probably this is going to take a little more time than usual to, to just, just to make these guys understand that we are, that we are just biologists, that we are not from the army or from a right-wing paramilitary group, that we are not doing intelligence, that we're just, just, you know, regular chaps. And, and when they say we have to go to the camp, it's, it's when I think this is going to be tough. This is going to be complicated to really explain to these guys, to, to, to get these guys believing us and understanding what we are doing here. So the three of you, you gathered up your things. When you guys gathered up your things, did the three of you talk together and say, like, what are we going to do? Yeah, I mean, no, it's, it's, not, it's not much that, that you can do. I mean, it's just... Fuck, this is getting this is getting complicated. And I was getting worried because of the tangled trouble that I was getting into. And you know, it's gonna be kind of really crappy situation for my family to deal with. But okay, we are here. There's nothing else we can do. Let's let's go and talk with the guy that wants to talk with us. Diego, the botanist, and the guide packed their stuff and started walking. And as the night came, so did the cold, dropping to about 40 degrees Fahrenheit. It started to rain. It was a little miserable. We walk super slow, kind of stopping. These guys are kind of waiting for, for like a, an answer, where to go, which trail to take. Very, very slow. Eventually, the group reached what seemed to be a temporal camp, and it was crawling with gorillas. Here, the group was taken to a little wooden house, an old abandoned building that the FARC had now taken as their own. Inside, there was a dark room with a few benches and minimal light due to the lack of windows. This is where Diego, the botanist, and their guide were kept to wait to speak to the commander. I, I, I remember that there was these long, boring days, like nothing happened. Just chatting about life, girls, politics, animals, plants, between the three of us. Just breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, and nothing else, you know, like because in general the guerrilla don't talk to you much. It's one, one of the one of the dynamics is when they have people that they are either you know kidnapping or retaining, they don't talk to you because you know they they don't want the guerrilla basic soldiers probably getting good feelings, good vibes with these chaps that they are kidnapping or something and probably running away or escaping or you know like taking the advantage to probably make friendship and getting some of the guerrilla guys sympathizing with the people that is being kidnapped. I think it was probably one or two full days of this. After a couple days passed, the commander wanted to interview each of them, one by one, alone. 
I remember that he was, he didn't come to our little house, but we were taken one by one, probably 20, 30 meters into just a little trail where there was this chap that was the commander, super tall guy. He had some scars in his face. Apparently in one of these war situations, he got bombs or, or fire or whatever. And, and he was, of course, very intimidating, really, really crappy guy. And he was just, you know, making questions, really not, you know, friendly at all. He was just making very dry conversation, like, what are you doing here? What is all this story about, you know, you're, you're interested in the birds and the plants? He was just, you know, basically getting all the information we, we already have given to the other guys in the past days. After the commander spoke with each of them individually, he came to see them as a group. He comes down and, and we, the three of us, meet with him and with several other guerrilla chaps that were there. And he basically says, like, okay, I, I heard all your all your stories and got all the information. And I really don't don't believe that you are what you say. I mean, that story that your biology is and all this crap is, is just crap for me. I think you are either undercover soldiers or right-wing paramilitars. You're doing intelligence here. You're getting in trouble here. He said that, like, you, you're, you're really getting in trouble here with us. Anyways, you, you gave us a lot of information, you know, like about your supposedly universities and families or whatever. So we're, we're gonna check on you. We're gonna, we're gonna check a little deeper. But anyways, guys, you're gonna be with us here for probably a long time. That's, that's what, the, what the guy said. When people ask me if I was ever, like, I was treated with violence during my kidnapping, I always said the truth that is no. The most violent, threatening, scary moment was that. When the guy, after hearing all of, all, all of, all of information, he doesn't want to understand. He really, really is stubborn, thinking that we are from the army or from the right-wing paramilitary groups that were the enemies in Colombia, That's, that, that moment is the, is the one when I really feel like, fuck, we are in trouble. This is going to be tough. And that's the only verbally and emotionally violent moment. So now at this point, are you allowed to be anywhere no, on their camp no, alone? No, that's a crazy thing. These guys take all our gear because they do think we are from the army or we're intelligence, you know, that we are the bad guys for them. So they take our binoculars, our GPS, our field notebooks, and this is super important. They take, I mean, and you, you, you know how freaky biologists we are about our field notebook is the Bible of the tropical biologist. So basically, you know, they, they kind of take all this stuff away from us and they kind of take away these things that connect us physically to, to nature having their belongings taken away from them, on top of, you know, being kidnapped and all, it was bad. But there was actually another problem, an even bigger problem. Diego had type 1 diabetes. You know, like two weeks after the, the kidnapping started, I told these guys, like, okay, guys, yeah, you've noticed I shoot insulin every day with meals and stuff. If this is going to get longer. You do need to get me insulin because if not, this is going to be trouble, you know? Right before Diego left for the trip, he had gotten a brand new vial of insulin, just a little over a month's supply. So up to this point, he was fine, but his supply was starting to run low. 
So he asked the FARC to contact his family. I had so many questions. Like, how does one send a package to the FARC? Where do they send it? I mean, was there like an address, like a P.O. box? It was a daunting concept to understand. And Diego wasn't sure of those answers either. It was crazy for me to think about Diego's family, knowing that he was kidnapped, but not being able to do anything about it except wait. The crazy part of a kidnapping is for you that are, you know, there, kidnap is actually comparatively is very easy compared to what your family is suffering outside because you have certainty. You have you have the information that you are alive, that you're eating, that you're okay or not, that you are in trouble, blah, 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 but you have the information. Your family has the situation of not knowing anything. They have no idea where are you, if you're alive, if you're healthy or not, if you're eating, you know, what's, what's the situation? What was the food like? I know that's a mundane question, but... I mean, I tell you, these guys, these guys fed us, like, super fucking well. We were having breakfast, then at mid-morning, we were having then lunch, having some, like, mid-afternoon snack, then we were having dinner, and we were having, like, a little snack at, just before bed. These guys, these wow. guys, I tell you, we, we weren't suffering. We weren't suffering about meals. And we probably had some shitty days when we had to move and walk for a full day or something. And we just had some, probably some cornbread and, and sugarcane blocks, panela or something like that, like for the day, for the hike. But otherwise, when we're on camp, we were just having tons of lentils, tons of rice, tons of noodles and spaghetti. Uh, sometimes these guys would buy and, and kill a cow. So we would have some pony soups, potato and bones, uh, kind of crappy. But anyways, tasty. So what at this point, what do you, what's your life like? I mean, do you start to make friends? Do you learn names? What do you do every day? Yeah, as I, as I tell you, these guys don't talk much to you. Some, some would break the rules and kind of, you know, have conversation and stuff while they were guarding you or, or just when, when you ask to be, you know, to have a shower or something. I had to ask for permission to go to the toilet. And a guy with a gun would go with me and just hang out next to me while I was taking a shower. Oh my God. I tell you, this is the this is the hardest thing of the kidnapping for me. <laughs> like I was like, come on, and you're not you're not gonna leave me. And and they were like, oh, oh you you will get used to it. I mean, just just there, two meters away from you while you're in your knees, you know, in your in your knees, no, squatting, taking a shed in the field, and this guy is just chatting with you two meters away. Like asking, sh- like whatever. watching this you, is- not even with his back to yeah, you. Yeah, where? Like just you know, hanging out, just hanging out, chatting. This is the situation. On on beginning of May, uh, around Mother's Day, I received a package that had a fleece that I used to have a home here in Medellin, and it had several packages of like sugar-free candy and chocolate bars and stuff that they sent me. And also, they send me more insulin. So the first day, I have certainty that my family knew, you know, I was, okay, it's probably three weeks after this whole thing happened, like when I got like this package with, you know, insulin and some things from home. So do you, does your, was it your mother or father or do you have siblings that took the original call? So I think I never gave them the number of the house because I thought that was a little more, you know, personal and sensitive and blah, blah, blah. So I gave them probably one of the numbers, work numbers. I don't remember exactly, but I think my father is the one that got a phone call eventually one day. Like, yeah, hello, we're Fark, we have your son. Oh my yeah, God. Sure. 
I wonder if that's really how they say it. You know, hello, this is the park. We have your son. I have no idea. And I can not ask because my father died uh, like three years ago. Oh. And my mother like a year and a half ago. Oh so my gosh. So basically, I'm a, I'm a recent orphan. I'm so and, sorry. <laughs> and I tell you, those details, fine details of kidnapping uh, that I, you know, I probably, I probably heard the story, detailed story of who got the call and stuff like that, but I, I don't really remember that. You know, in that daily basis, I remember I was always, like every single day, saying to the guy that was that day in charge of us, hey, man, I want my field notebook. I just wanna, I just wanna make a list of the birds I'm hearing and seeing. I just wanna keep notes, you know, that's, that's what we do. Like, but these guys were really, really feeling threatened by the fact that I was writing names in Latin, scientific names, in this field notebook, and they didn't understand the language. They were thinking, they were swearing to God. That was all code. That was all, you know, like, really, really valuable information about the, the security of the camp or whatever shit, I don't know. But they didn't want to return my field notebook to me even to just write whatever, poetry, or just make a sketches, they never returned it. Sometimes they would give us cigarettes. I, I've never have smoked. I probably smoked a few times up there just to burn a couple of hours, literally. So I started to take those little papers that come inside the, the box of the cigarettes. That is that paper that is kind of metallic. But in the other side, uh, you could write on it. So I got pen or pencil, I don't remember where from, and in our tent at night, with a little candle or, or, or with my headlamp, hiding from the sentinels, from the guard, I would do my bird list of the day in these little pieces of paper. It's not that I was going bananas and I wanted to keep my mind straight, but I wanted to keep doing what I was being trained to do. Read nature, translate that into notes, and eventually get those notes to the public and, and share it. So I, I was doing this every night. I was writing about howler monkeys and Andean condors, birds that were nesting. I, I got to see a brushfinch, a slaty brushfinch that was a new species for me. I've never seen it before. So I made a little sketch, a little drawing, and I, I put some arrows and like, oh, the crown is purple and, and you know, the whiskers are black. Even painted it a little bit with some fruits that I had in, in, in one of the trees there that were kind of purple-red. I don't know. And you have your eyes and your ears and, and you just were, you know, like sketching nature there in, in words or in sketches. And that's what I was doing, just trying to keep busy following my passions. But because these guys are afraid of the Latin names because they think it's code, I thought like, the only way I can probably get this out with me is to hide this. And the coolest thing is that, because I, I, I'm diabetic, I had syringes with me and each needle came in a little plastic uh, wrapping. So what I did was, when I finished one of these uh, notes in the, in the cigarette paper, when I finished like a full page, I would just bend this little thing and roll it like crazy. And with fibers that I would get from, from the camp, I would just make a little knot, and it was like a tiny little super dense package. And I would put it inside this plastic wrapping of my needles, one by one, when I was finishing them, like squeeze it in with a little stick, and they were unreachable. They were like in the frame of my backpack.
when we had to move, that was the bag I used to pack, you know, like one change of clothes that you had with me and I don't know, a couple of sticks that I was carrying just to play. And, you know, we, we made some pipes with bamboo and we were smoking ferns and, <laughs> and lichens and mosses and shit just, just to have fun. But of course, because the backpack was also my pillow every night, I had it all the time with me. So, you know, they never thought on taking it away from me. In the meantime, while Diego was hiding his research, the FARC was doing their own research on Diego and his group. And of course, their biologist stories checked out. It finally became clear to the FARC that Diego and his crew were not spies and not a threat. However, they still weren't free to go. Like most kidnappings in Colombia, the end goal was monetary. So the commander decides to keep us there for, for money. And of course, when people kidnap people, I guess that's the game. You, you, you have to cut communication. So the family either, either pays a ransom or gives you the information that they need or whatever. But that's, that's the pressure, you know, that's the, that's, the, that's the game. Kidnapping was one of the things that they had to do to just support war. They have to kidnap people to get money and they have to bribe uh, ranchers to get money, and that was the only way to, to, to get money to support the war. And so while the group was waiting for their ransom to be negotiated, they were forced to keep walking farther and farther into the dense mountain terrain, staying at different bark camps in the area. As the days edged forward, Diego had different guards, and some guards were with him more than others. There were two in particular he mentioned to me. One of them is Eileen, and Eileen was a minor when I was kidnapped. Eileen was not even 18-year-old. She was in charge of guarding me several nights. And then Omar. Omar Omar was like one of those guys that are super well-trained to go in front, check for landmines and explosives and minor things, tracks, little leaves that were drier than others, and where to go when we go to a fork, like, are, are we going right or left, you know? And he was just the, the jungle man. And I was always behind him because I was very entertained learning stuff from his skills, asking him like, why are we taking the right in this fork and not the left? And he would teach me like, look at, look at these leaves. They are drier than the other ones. So probably the guys that took this path were three days earlier, but this is fresher. So we are taking the fresher one because we are following the guys from this morning. Again, I, I was never being aimed with a shotgun, you know, like, oh, walk, walk. No, I mean, this is not movie-style movie kidnapping. And, of course, there's been kidnappings like that in Colombia, but there's been also these type of situations where we were just unlucky and these guys were just taking care of us while any negotiation was being done with their families, with their universities, whatever. Of course, eventually, like, family had to send a little money to the jungle for us. During the time Diego's family was negotiating his ransom, the botanist situation was resolved, and he was released, about two months into their original capture. As for the local guy, he was never really kidnapped, per se. But because he was from a town with a lot of paramilitary presence, the FARC graciously told him that if he returned to the village, the paramilitary would most likely accuse him of taking the students up into the mountains to sell them to the FARC. Needless to say, the guide stayed put, until around the time the botanist was released. However, Diego wasn't alone while he waited out the rest of his negotiation. Around the same time the botanist and the guide left, 
the FARC kidnapped two more cattle ranchers who were roaming the mountains, as well as another young man who Diego knew very little about. Knowing Diego was going to be leaving soon, this guy asked him for a favor. So this, this chap asked me to call his mother and say, please tell my mother I'm okay. Um, you know, we, we are dealing with the situation, but I'm okay, blah, blah, blah. So I put her number, I just put it with my notes. What Diego means is he took her number on a piece of paper and put it with the notes that were rolled up in the syringe tubes, still hidden deep inside his backpack. And as the days crept forward, Diego began to push for more information about his release. The person in charge of that little camp was a lady. She was probably 49, 50 year old lady, kind of blondish, clear eyes, a little European looking. And I asked her, you know, every two, three days, like, do you, do you have any updates? Do you have any news? What's happening? And one morning I was having a shower and I asked her, you know, what is going? Like, any news? And she said, I might have you news for these days. And she never said that before. And I felt like, oh, she's just bullshitting me. You know, she's just saying whatever. Like, oh, yeah, I might have you. But then that same night, she just came and actually she sat on the side of my tent and she said, man, you should pack because you're leaving tomorrow. And I was like, what the fuck? And she said, yeah, you're, you're just leaving tomorrow. That's, that's, the, that's the instructions I have. That's the orders I have. We had walk already almost 100 kilometers south in the mountain branch. Every night when we were walking, I had my mental GPS working. I did know which town was those lights, and I had the, the snow peaks of the Santa Marta Mountains in the west as a reference. I did know where I was. So I thought when she said that, that I was going to be next day just down there, in the town that was just down there. And I thought, oh, cool. In the morning, I'm going to be just having a beer or a Diet Coke in the main square of Kulasi. This is, this is neat. But Diego's vision of his beer or Diet Coke didn't go quite as he imagined it. The next morning, Omar, along with Alexander, another gorilla who also had helped guard Diego on and off during the kidnapping, were instructed to take Diego down the mountain, but not to that town Diego described seen from his vantage point high up in the hills. These guys said, like, okay, we're riding mules. I said, oh, shit, we're, we're not walking. And they said, this guy said, no, we're returning to Casa de Vidrio. That's the glass house. And glass, Casa de Vidrio is a place where I was kidnapped, like several kilometers north. We basically rode mules for two full days, easily 16 hours for two days. And we start to just trace our steps back and go on these beautiful landscapes, unbelievably beautiful landscapes. We're going, you know, mule pace, slowly, just you're going and, and just, you know, a little, little piece of grass in my mouth, checking the habitat and the surroundings. But I could actually go in front of them several meters, or I could just break my mule and keep watching hummingbirds. I, I stayed 100 meters back, just watching a bird, and these guys were just looking behind, like, oh, he's coming, that's okay. They weren't like side to side with me like the past three months. So this is this weird sensation that I don't have to ask permission because I was still in their hands, but I wasn't kidnapped. You know, I was going to freedom. The trip took three days and two nights. The first night is what Diego remembers the most. 
We, we slept at a, a peasant's house that first night. Omar and Alexander go into the main house, but I go into the barn in the back because they don't want me to be seen by the family there, by the people. So I'm sleeping in the barn in a little whatever shed with some blankets and, and sheets and stuff. It's okay. But then Omar comes to me and kind of knocks the door and comes in and says, hey, Diego, take it easy, mate. Like, remember, like, you're free. You're going to be free the day after tomorrow. We're just taking you to, to, to freedom. It's okay. But don't, don't get crazy. Don't get bananas. Don't fucking run away. Don't escape. You don't have to escape. But you're going to sleep without a guard. I mean, you're just going to sleep like a normal person. Don't, don't run away because you're going to get us in trouble and you're going to get yourself in trouble. Like from here, if you run down the hill, you will find more guerrilla groups. You you will find paramilitary groups. There might be army. You could be confused. I mean, don't don't do stupid things. We're gonna get you back to freedom in two days. But this is the first. This is your first night in three months that you are free. That you you are not sleeping with a guard next to you with an AK-47. Like, enjoy it. But don't do stupid things. So I like like in a way, actually, like. I felt him like an uncle coming to give me advice on a lovely way. Like, pretty, pretty touching, pretty powerful. The second night, we, we actually stayed in, in one of the old camps, very close where, where I was kidnapped. And then the next morning is when, when these guys take me to Casa de Vidrio. And that's where they said, okay, Diego, you, you're free. Man, have fun, be safe. And we just shake hands, hug each other and, and chop. And as for the backpack full of the hidden field notes? When I was leaving, I was thinking like, fuck, the only thing that I need to get out from here is my backpack. And they check it when I was going to leave. And of course they, I mean, to get those things, you really have to kind of dismantle the backpack. So they checked everything, they empty my backpack, but they just said, okay, you just have your two belongings, you get away from here. And basically someone was just waiting there for me in a car just to take me down. Like who? Like someone from there, from the guerrillas camp or one of your... No, 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 it was, it was someone, someone external, someone that, that was like just helping with the negotiation and stuff. But it took two days. You, you know, the night this lady tells me like, oh, you're leaving, you're going free. It took me three full days to be having a beer or a Diet Coke. <laughs> and hugging my father that was down there in the in the main town waiting for me in Vajedu Park. But yeah, the backpack came out and I got my, my notes out. And that, that's probably the only physical thing I did want to bring out and, and, and it happened. This is the first time I've said this in my life about the kidnapping, but Actually, the daily life was contemplative. Of course, besides being worried, like I was actually training deeper on this contemplative way of approaching nature and just, you know, using more my ears and using more my eyes. I mean, like we were people in the biology world. We were on one of the diversity hotspots of the Andes. We were on a habitat that we wanted to go and explore so I mean, of course, we were worried and we were sometimes, you know, bored and depressed and sometimes someone was crying. And But 
Otherwise, we're just having a contemplative life. And I earn my money nowadays. My job is contemplative. I do birding tours. You know, I take bird watchers to see birds. And, and I'm really, I really appreciate and I'm a privilege. And I'm, you know, I, I'm thankful for that every day of my life. But the beautiful part of the story is going back to Periha with the gorilla, you know, with the guys that kidnapped me and, and doing biological expeditions with them and stuff like that. Yes, you heard Diego correctly. Listen to our next episode to find out how and why Diego was reconnected with the Fart Front 41. This episode of Shadow Clock was created by Adam Gould and me. Post-production audio is by Matt Sorrow. Additional sound editing is by Josh Kobach, who also created an original music piece for this episode titled Ominous. Social media is managed by Alec Jansen and Kelsey Hayes. Music is credited to Pond5 and Premium Beat. Content contributors, composers, and individual song titles for each episode can be found on our website at shadow-clock.com. Kate Cosgrove creates original illustrations for each episode of Shadow Clock, which you can also see at shadow-clock.com. If you like the show, you can spread the word by telling someone else about Shadow Clock and, of course, by following us on social media. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Shadow Clock Podcast, on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Shadow Clock Pod, and on YouTube at Shadow Clock. I personally want to express just how much it means every time you give us a click, a like, a subscribe, or follow, and we love word-of-mouth endorsements. Your support means the world, and I can't thank each and every one of you enough. Speaking of thanks, a special thanks goes out to Alejandro Velez, Adam Gould, Gustavo Bravo, Alec Jansen, Kate Cosgrove, Josh Kobach, Matt Sorrow, Johnny Messina, Bruce Sively, Adam Zavislak, Austin Krieg, Forest Hills Northern High School in Michigan, Arian Dada, Duro Howard, and Kelsey Hayes. Lastly, a huge thank you to Diego Calderon Franco for sharing his experience with me and being so patient for this episode to drop, as he was also one of our first guests. Diego, we know it's been a long time coming. To our listeners, if you yourself are birders or simply want to know what Diego's up to, you can follow Diego and all his birding adventures on Instagram. We've included a link to his profile and bird tour company on our website. So if you find yourself in Colombia, I highly recommend that you take a birding tour with Diego. I can't wait to sign up for mine. As we are an independent out-of-pocket podcast, creating this entire first season with zero funding, we very much welcome donations. You can make a donation on our website by going to shadow-clock.com and clicking on the donation button. Donating is one of the best ways you can help us continue to share these stories. And with that, I'm Katie Mahalik. This is Shadow Clock.